I'm Michael Jerry. I'm the senior partner and actually was one of the co-founders of OCNC, a global strategy consulting firm. We work with clients across the world. That's my day job. In my spare time, I work on several boards and charities as well. So I'm chair of Fair Trade, as you know, the poverty alleviation charity. I'm also chair of ITAD, which is a leading agency advising international development programs on their effectiveness. And I also undertake a few tasks for His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. I chair his organic food brand, Dutchy Originals. One of the brains behind these islands, and actually uh, its chair, is an individual called Kevin Haig. Kevin and I go back a long way. We were colleagues together in the early days of OCNC. So he worked with me in the consulting industry. Since when he went on to become an entrepreneur, founded some internet businesses in Scotland, and then has become, of course, increasingly well-known, notorious, I might even say, as a blogger on issues to do, particularly with Scottish independence. I've stayed in touch very closely with him and also become very interested in the causes that he's interested in. A lot of the professional work I do is international as a consultant, but also a lot of the charity work I do as a trustee is in the field of international development. And it's in that area that I see Britain has a very effective and very innovative role. And that's something which isn't recognised internally in terms of our national discourse. Sometimes if you listen to the national debate, it seems to be stuck between these archetypes, these polar opposites of what Britain is internally and on the world stage. One of them is essentially a council of despair, which says that Britain is a once great nation now in decline, that it should reconcile or accommodate itself to a reduced status, that it's in the global second tier, and we should accept that. That's one view you hear very commonly. And then there's a, a completely opposite view which says that Britain still has special status that harks back to the fact that we're the victor of the Second World War, that large elements of the map were once not so long ago coloured pink, and that therefore we still deserve a ranking as a great nation. You hear this debate going on between the two, and what I feel is that not only is neither of those true, but neither of those is in any way representative of what you hear when you travel internationally. When you engage internationally in how people see Britain, they actually have a very warm, sometimes affectionate, admiring view of Britain. Quite realistic, but they see Britain as an open, entrepreneurial, democratic, free nation, and a nation which has a very positive role on the world stage. Sometimes I think, caught in our domestic debate, we lose sight of those truths. So that international view of Britain, I think, is more accurate. In fact, it's backed up by the evidence. It's backed up by the facts. There's a cultural aspect, there's an economic aspect, and there's a political aspect. Taking culture first, Britain has a really very strong and distinct culture. The benefit of that is that it's able to use that to project its values internationally, and it can influence other nations. Let me give you just one example, which is Britain's education sector, and particularly its universities. More world leaders were educated in British universities than in any other nation. Its universities are really world-leading. There was a recent Times Education Supplement, which ranked us as in the number one and number two slots for global universities. And in fact, we had 31 in total out of the top 200. 
If we look at Britain's cultural characters, they range very broadly, obviously, from Romeo and Juliet to Mr. Bean, from Doctor Who to Harry Potter. All very different, but in some ways all encapsulating an aspect of British culture. And they say something quite favourable about Britain. The same is true in music. We have not only a leading music industry, but many leading music artists. I think five out of the world's top 10 best-selling music artists are in fact British. And the same is true in sport. We came second in the medal table in the Rio de Janeiro Olympics and same in the Paralympics. The same is true in science. We have more Nobel laureates than France, five times as many as Russia or Japan. So in all these aspects of culture, we see something which is quite favourably viewed internationally, where it says something quite positive about the British character. And that gives us some degree of soft power. It gives Britain the ability to use that in order to positively influence and in order to build trade relations, cultural relations, relations in scientific and educational areas as well. Turning to the economic sphere, again, the national discourse often seems to view Britain as an economic laggard, and we enjoy almost reveling in an image of ourselves as an underdog, as an underperformer. In fact, the statistics don't demonstrate that at all. It was the case for pretty much a century, up until about 1970, that Britain was falling behind other developed nations and particularly the US, but actually also France or Germany. But since the 1970s, Britain has actually been extraordinarily successful economically. We've narrowed the gap in terms of income per head against those other nations. We've improved productivity. There's been a whole series of reasons for that, uh, fundamentally resting on Britain's entrepreneurialism, but also on political moves like privatisation, like the reforms of Britain's labour market, which have improved productivity, like the widening of access to university education, like the opportunities that immigrants have had to come to this country and then to be real entrepreneurs and to build British businesses. Although over the last six or seven years, really, since the credit crunch and the beginning of the global downturn, that performance has stalled somewhat, Nevertheless, over the last 40 years or so, Britain has been extraordinarily successful. It has been an improving picture of investment and skill in the economy. And that's not a bubble. Bubbles don't go on for that long. This has been a real growth in many British successful sectors. Britain actually has an exceptionally vibrant digital economy and, of course, increasingly relevant if you look at the statistics around the consumer behaviour in Britain, with the exception of China and possibly South Korea, we probably have the most advanced digital consumers in the world in terms of online search volumes, online behaviours, propensity to do online shopping. And that's enabled the development of an e-commerce sector in the UK with some real world leaders, particularly in areas like financial technology, fintech. We employ more people in fintech in the UK than are in New York or in Singapore or in Hong Kong and Australia combined. We're a leader in areas like education technology, like video games. We're increasingly emerging in areas like artificial intelligence cybersecurity. I think one of the most important aspects of why Britain has been economically successful is the inward investment flows, the foreign direct investment which comes into the UK. 
It's a little understood fact that, second only to the US, Britain has the biggest stock of inward investment of any country in the world, more than China, more than Germany. It's particularly favoured by European nations as a place to invest, but also by Americans, also by Asians. What investors see in the UK is economic prospects, they see political and institutional stability, they see the rule of law, they see obviously the openness of our language, our mother tongue, they see a good educational infrastructure, a well-skilled workforce. And this doesn't just come to London, it's a misconception that this investment is only flowing into London. In fact, Scotland was the second largest number of inward investment projects received of any region in the UK. That creates tens of thousands of jobs. It really sustains innovation in the country. It's a source of capital which gives us a strong currency. And it compensates for some degree, actually, for our relatively weak balance of payments. Without that, we would have a much weaker economy and much weaker sterling. So let me move on to then the third aspect which I talked about, which is Britain's political influence. What's seen internationally here is that Britain has a centuries-long-standing degree of political stability and progress towards being a beacon of democracy and personal liberty and freedom. People think of it going all the way back to Magna Carta and then developing through the Glorious Revolution and parliamentary reform and then in the last century, universal suffrage and so on. It wasn't a one-off event. It was a series of political developments which took us to what today is seen as a very stable, very open and free constitutional settlement. As a consequence, I think you can argue that we've had a, a national temper which has been quite mild, at least if you look at the 20th century by comparison with other European countries. We in Britain have really avoided, by and large, those extremes of fascism or communism or unattractive trends like contagion of anti-Semitism or extreme nationalism. And Britain's political discourse has been relatively moderate. As a consequence, we have a, a tradition and a reputation for stability, for liberty, and that gives us the ability to punch well above our weight in global politics. Well, of course, those who may be listening are probably bursting with the refrain, well, what about Brexit? And I've managed to get this far without mentioning it, but it clearly adds a different colour to many of the things I've been talking about culturally, economically, and above all, I guess, politically. As I've already said, we have this long-lasting institutional framework, and generally speaking, that has given the country a reassurance, which means we can have patriotism without nationalism, if you like. But there's no doubt that since the referendum just under two years ago, a lot of that has been upset. And there does appear, both internally, but I would say also definitely, as we're seen from abroad, there does appear to be a real polarisation of national discourse and an unpleasantness which has been introduced into the national temper. There's no doubt also that when you, as I do, continue to travel abroad and seek views on Britain, the number one question comes up, well, what about Brexit? And it's generally regarded that Britain has developed into some internal domestic quarrel. No doubt at all that it has shaken, to a degree, Britain's reputation for being an open nation, that we are seen as being less warm towards immigration, that we're seeing less welcoming, for example, towards students coming to our educational establishments, that we seem to have lost a degree of internationalism in our aspect. 
I am still of the view that that is so far not something which has necessarily permanently changed and that if Brexit gets to a point where it is able to reconcile itself to a positive relationship with Europe and, as many would argue, is able then to actually give us a freer reign to be able to establish new relationships with other countries, particularly developing and emerging countries, then it may be something which doesn't leave too long a lasting negative effect. It's also an aspect, a very important aspect, for how a nation can drain itself of soft power. For how when you go through a divorce, essentially, that divorce has consequences in terms of weakening your position. It's been a huge distraction in terms of the ability politically and diplomatically for Britain to exert its influence internationally. And it's undermined the confidence and the affinity with which Britain is seen internationally. What's now so commonly accepted, it's barely even recognised, is that Britain is a very successful union itself. Three centuries ago, we embarked on the amazing project of developing what was then Europe's largest free trade zone and single currency. And that required, at the time and since, a degree of constitutional accommodation and compromise the development of plurality of national identity. It's unfortunate, therefore, that we haven't translated that accumulated national experience into being able to accept or even, I would say, to take a leadership role in the same European project. The European Union implies actually a much milder form of plurality and certainly a much milder form of pooling of sovereignty And yet it seems that despite Britain's experience, that's something which many people have found quite difficult to accept. So as you know, part of my interests are to do with international development. And I I think we should be proud, prouder than we are, in fact, that the United Kingdom is one of only six countries internationally which meets the UN's target to contribute 0.7% of gross national income on foreign development assistance. That target, of course, has become controversial and has come under some pressure. But I believe, and the evidence is there, that that has some extraordinarily positive impact in terms of its aim to lift people out of poverty, that we provide humanitarian assistance, that we provide nutrition programs for children, that we provide access to clean water or sanitation for so many people. And that in parallel, actually, to government spend, the UK also has many of the world's leading NGOs, charities based in the UK, such as Oxfam or Save the Children or Amnesty International. We should be very proud, I think, of that sector, not only for what it does internationally, but also for the way in which, in the long run, that serves the United Kingdom's interests. And one of the areas where we've been really uniquely successful, I think, is making sure that the development assistance reaches into fragile states and conflict zones. These are the areas where poverty is now really an intractable problem and where those nations can easily become rogue nations, fragile states, and the sources of international instability and terror if the root causes of poverty are not addressed. Britain, I think, has been very successful in doing what it needs in terms of improving governance, helping individuals to hold their governments to account. We've played a real leadership role. That's something which, again, in our national discourse, we tend to underestimate. Of course, Brexit has become all-consuming in terms of our political efforts and really our national debate. 
But we will survive Brexit and we'll come out of the other side of it with whatever outcome we do. When we do so, however, I think we'll discover that the United Kingdom and the bonds which tie the four nations of the United Kingdom appear to us to be even more important than they did before. Where we'll end up is the need to rebuild our position on the global stage, the need to forge a new future for the United Kingdom and build new relations. I hope also we will end up with a recognition that we still have a really important role to play, a role which actually very few nations can play in influencing and addressing some of the real challenges which the world faces. And these are all more important than Brexit. Brexit tends to dominate the headlines. The world is facing threats like climate change, like security of food and water, natural resources and environmental threats, like the rise of militant Islamist fundamentalism, potential return to Cold War geopolitical dynamics, and of course, global economic problems as well. And all of those, each of those, is actually more important than Brexit. So it seems to me that as a united kingdom, united in optimism, united in confidence, united in a sense of shared identity and of our position on the world stage. It's in that way that we can help play a role participating in solving some of these really important and intractable world problems.